the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering and Dan Rice. Well, he gave up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Well, there's been a lot going on. We're going to try to cover some of it. We're also going to share a couple of classic interviews. We'll hear from Charles Stone, Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. We'll also hear in the second hour of today's program, Dean and Sarah, the unsaved Christian reaching cultural Christianity with the gospel. All of that coming up today on The Georgine Rice Show. Well, after Vice President Kamala Harris swore in Senators John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, giving Democrats the majority in the Senate, it means that Senator Chuck Schumer is now the majority leader of the Senate. Well, as majority leader, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris will have a partner who is ready, willing, and able to help achieve forward-looking an agenda. That's a quote from Schumer, a statement earlier this month after victory was declared for Ossoff and Warnoff. Well, Harris also appointed Senator Alex Padilla, her replacement in the upper chamber, after she and President Joe Biden were sworn into office. Currently, the Democratic caucus in the Senate has 50 seats to Republicans 50, meaning that Harris, the vice president, is the tiebreaker, thereby giving the Democrats control. America is uh, turning over a new leaf. That's uh, from Ossoff speaking to reporters on Wednesday morning. Uh, We are turning the page on the last four years and to reunite the country, defeat COVID-19, rush economic relief to the people. Uh, That's why they sent us here. And, uh, you know, Georgia has sent a young Jewish man and a black pastor to represent our state in the U.S. Senate. It's a sign of generational and epical change for our state. Well, it certainly represents dramatic shifts all across the fruited plain as generated from the state of Georgia. So Chuck Schumer is now the Senate majority leader, given what I've just explained. And I should mention that he announced uh, on Friday evening that the impeachment trial for former President Trump is going to start on this week, February 8th. I should say begin the week of February 8th, which is, of course, not this week. Well, the trial will consider one article of impeachment for incitement of insurrection, It was approved by the House on the 13th of January. The House includes rather 10 Republican representatives voted to convict the president or then President Trump after he incited a mob of his supporters to mass at the Capitol earlier this month. Overwhelming Capitol Police, they breached the building, forced lawmakers to evacuate. Well, the House will transfer the article to the Senate sometime this evening if it hasn't already taken place. Well, the Senate will swear in its uh, members to the trial on Tuesday, January 26th. That's according to an agreement between Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell that was obtained by CNN. However, the trial itself may not begin until February 9th or later, so as to give House impeachment managers time to build their cases. Now, there's some real controversy around all of this. This is the first time a sitting president has been impeached twice, but certainly the first time a civilian who is no longer president is being impeached. 
for that second time, whether or not it's constitutional, what the tack should be, what authority members of Congress have. These are questions that are quite legitimate and are being uh, addressed all across the um, the chambers in Washington. Republicans set out to ensure the Senate's next steps will respect former President Trump's rights and due process, the institution of the Senate and the office of the presidency. This is a, a quote from Mitch McConnell spokesman Doug Anders. That goal has been achieved. This is a win for due process and fairness. Well, Senate Democrats need 17 Republican colleagues to join them in order to convict the former president. McConnell himself is reportedly open to conviction seeing it as a way to purge Trump from the GOP. But there are a lot of competing interests in this process of impeaching the president for the second time. Well, impeaching a once sitting president who is now a civilian for the second time. For the Democrats, high on their list is depriving him of the opportunity to ever run for public office again, namely 2024. For some Republicans, remove him as the most influential individual in the Republican Party, and to scratch his name from the um, from the books, if you will. So there are alternative motives that don't necessarily reflect whether or not impeaching a, a, an individual who once held the office of president but is now a civilian is constitutional and just how to go about it. So we'll watch with great interest because this has significant historical import that not only will impact the Trump administration as it once existed, but certainly have broad implications for future administrations when impeachment sort of becomes the way of um, making political uh, points, um, depriving one's political opponents of opportunity for influence and office holding. So we'll follow this as closely as possible over the next several weeks. Meanwhile, um, there are many options. That's what we're being told. Democrats have eyed the 14th Amendment as an impeachment alternative, although it seems that they are bent on moving toward an impeachment at this point. But Republicans are presenting a largely unified front as the Senate is preparing to kick off a second impeachment trial of the former president, Donald Trump, with a growing number saying that they don't believe the Constitution envisioned pursuing conviction of someone who's already out of office. Well, today, after nearly two weeks of delay, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi transmitted the articles of impeachment that officially accused the president or Mr. Trump of inciting insurrection with his speech to supporters ahead of the January 6th attack on Congress. Republicans urged the president to focus on the constitutional arguments over whether a former president can be impeached because the chief punishment is removal from office and a secondary punishment is banishment from seeking office again. A trial after the president has left office is beyond the Senate's constitutional authority. That was a statement made by Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas speaking on Sunday Morning Futures program on Fox News. He said the prospect of a trial of someone out of office for nearly three weeks won't sit well with Americans dealing with the pandemic and with a new administration in place. Senator Marco Rubio from Florida, he called the attempt to ban Mr. Trump from office arrogant Uh, that voters should decide that at the ballot rather than in a Senate hearing after the president is no longer in office. Again, this has the potential to impact uh, President Biden's agenda in his first months, 100 days, which uh, tend to be kind of the focus in an early administration. Is this in his best interest? In fact, in a press conference earlier today, his um, White House press secretary was asked whether or not the president is considering 
um, discouraging the impeachment to move forward for his own sake, for the sake of the country and in the interest of moving things forward. She was not prepared to answer that question. So, again, we'll continue to keep an eye poised on what happens in the White House and in Congress over the next several days. But again, the articles of impeachment released by Nancy Pelosi today, they will be trotted over to the Senate. You might recall, um, what, 13 months ago when the uh, original impeachment took place, there's a delegation that represents the the uh, House of Representatives that will make the case. Uh, they will, in a very solemn um, display, bring those articles to the Senate and with all the pomp and circumstance that would be in place if, in fact, they were attempting to impeach a sitting president uh, will be uh, in full uh, display for the American people as we determine, uh, actually, as we see others determine what the course will ultimately be. Now, it's rather interesting that Chief Justice John Roberts will not preside over former President Donald Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate. Uh, Senator uh, Patrick Leahy, who is the Senate's president pro tempore, He's going to oversee the trial, and that's according to multiple reports and some announcements made earlier in the day. The House passed one article of impeachment against Trump earlier this month for incitement of insurrection. Uh, Roberts oversaw Trump's first impeachment trial in 2020 in line with the U.S. Constitution's directive that the Supreme Court's chief justice should preside over a Senate impeachment trial of the president which uh, holds as its primary goal to remove that individual from office. However, Trump left office on the 20th of January and the Constitution. It doesn't lay out guidelines for how to impeach a former president. Senator Leahy is expected to preside over at the trial. Um, uh, Senators uh, preside when the impeachment is not the president of the United States. And of course, you can impeach other lower offices. So they're following the pattern that would be in place if, for example, they were attempting to impeach a sitting Supreme Court justice or a federal judge and so on. So Senator Leahy is expected to preside at trial, according to the Senate. um, And that's what uh, we are being told to expect this time around. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we will be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Monday afternoon. Coming up later this hour, we're going to hear from author Charles Stone, Holy Noticing. That's the title of his book, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. That's coming up in the next um, two segments here on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, California is trying to recall their governor, Gavin Newsom, and that campaign to oust him is nearing a threshold that's needed in order to place it on the ballot. Now, these efforts are notoriously unsuccessful, but this is rather telling that it's gotten this far along. Well, the recall campaign to oust California Governor Newsom is nearing its required threshold to qualify for the ballot. Over the weekend, uh, recall organizers said that they collected 1.2 million uh, signatures rather uh, needed. They need 1.5 million uh, by the 17th of March to qualify for the ballot. And they have now collected 1.2 million uh, per state law petition sponsors. They have to gather the signatures of 12 percent of the voters uh, voter turnout in California's previous statewide election, which is about 1,495,709 names. Again, we're talking about 
um, California. Well, Rescue California, one of the two main groups that's organizing the campaign, say that their goal is to collect two million signatures to account for the fact that many of the signatures will inevitably prove invalid. We know all about that here in Oregon. San Diego's KUSI reported on Saturday that California's Secretary of State has confirmed 84% of the signatures collected so far are in fact valid. Well, this is the sixth recall effort the Democratic governor has faced in two years, once considered a pipe dream in the solidly blue state. This latest recall effort gained traction in the last year because of growing discontent over the governor's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the account on the economy, rather. And you may have noticed that uh, the governor has had an epiphany just moments, just days ago, in which shutting down the economy is a really bad idea reversing himself uh, in the political climate we find ourselves in and I suppose trying to save a bit of his own political bacon in the process. Well, in other developments, petitions to the petition rather to recall the governor attracted a million signatures there. A former San Diego mayor signed that petition to recall Governor Newsom saying we need change now. And as the um, governor's recall effort gains momentum, Tammy Bruce says Californians are in dire straits. The rise of the concealed carry woman is uh, certainly a headline story. We have to empower each other, women are saying now, as they say, we need to um, arm ourselves. Ohio governor, the Ohio governor, has signed a gun bill expanding stand your ground rights by eliminating persons' duties to retreat. And states are pushing for allowing concealed carry to uh, of guns without permit. Concealed carry permits have risen despite the clampdown from some states, according to a new report. Well, Patrick Mahomes uh, sets up an epic Super Bowl uh, showdown with Tom Brady. The Chiefs win the AFC Championship. Watched both games, thoroughly enjoyed that. The Kansas City Chiefs will meet the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Super Bowl, what is it, 55? After defeating the Buffalo Bills in the AFC Championship on Sunday, uh, 38-24. to Well, the Chiefs' victory will set up an epic showdown with Tom Brady, the Elder and the Buccaneers and the rematch of their Week 12 game. Kansas City will be looking to win its second consecutive Super Bowl and doing something only Brady and the New England Patriots have done in 2003. That would be the younger. Mahomes was the uh, was his usual self, even as he uh, was forced to be in the um, concussion protocol throughout the week heading into the AFC Championship. He finished 29 for 38 with three touchdown passes. Two of his three touchdowns went to uh, tight end Travis Kelsey and the other to um, Hardman. Well, the Chiefs got out of a, to a sluggish start, though. The Bills put up nine points in the first quarter, and it appeared that Josh Allen was going to make things tough on the defending Super Bowl champions. However, Kansas City used a 21-point second quarter to derail the Bills' momentum and the rest, of course, is history. Well, Tom Brady's dominance was on full display as the Buccaneers set to make an historic Super Bowl appearance in about two weeks. Well, Chinese warplanes have entered Taiwan airspace days after Biden takes office, perhaps a, a test of his leadership. And Bernie Sanders is threatened to advance coronavirus stimulus with reconciliation if Republicans refuse to support it. It's rather nebulous at this point. Josh Hawley says it's time to stand up against the muzzling of America. And Biden may force American taxpayers to foot the bill for San Francisco's homeless hotels. There's a lot to say about that. We won't have time to do it today, but we'll return on another occasion. Well, China's overstock of U.S. 
um, or rather overtook the U.S. as the top destination for foreign investment last year, according to the Wall Street Journal. And the top hedge funds set performance records for clients making $63.5 billion in the year 2020, according to data. Well, Oxfam is warning that fallout of the coronavirus pandemic will lead to the biggest increase in global inequality on record. And Microsoft is uh, going to announce whether it will further suspend uh, PAC donations to those who voted against certification of the Electoral College. Now, just as a reminder, you realize that the Constitution makes very specific direction if you want to challenge the certification of an Electoral College, a state or something. There's a process to do that. And in every election in which a Republican has won, Democrats have issued a challenge, much like the Republicans did. So this is really quite interesting. They're relying on the collective ignorance of the American people, that we don't know what the law permits. There's a, there's a, me- a mechanism in place for dissenting the outcome of an electoral college vote, a system that allows Congress to revisit the, uh, the issue, to vote on it, and then to move forward. But Microsoft announces that they're suspending their PAC donations. I'm suspecting not many of those donations would have gone to members who would have challenged this time around. But this is a regular practice that we see in Washington that's been elevated to somehow an act of treason. Well, company, uh, the company behind the humanoid robots wants to mass produce them by the end of the year. I'm not sure I want one. And big tech companies are using lobbyists, if you will, lobbyists to engage with Biden's The Administration. Well, the articles of impeachment are expected to be sent over to the Senate today with all the attendant pomp and circumstance. It will likely be just a show as more Republicans oppose the trial. Then there's this. Senator Tim Kaine, Virginia Democrat, doubted that enough Republicans are ready to join Democrats to convict. He's suggesting an alternative path. That's flexing the 14th Amendment, which was written after the Civil War, to allow Congress to bar people who fought against the U.S. from holding office requires only a majority vote by Congress. So that may be one of the alternatives that we hear suggested. Um, Abigail Shire, writing for the Wall Street Journal in an op-ed piece, said that uh, Biden attacked women on day one. She explains that any school that receives federal funding, including nearly every public school, must either allow biological boys who self-identify as girls onto girls' sports teams or face administrative action from the education department. If this policy were to be broadly adopted in anticipation of the regulations that are no doubt on the way, what would this mean for girls and women's sports? Well, let me just um, interject here. As a woman who went to the University of Oregon on a track scholarship, this would have been devastating. Um, From Dr. Albert Moeller, he says Biden had promised to be the most LGBTQ friendly or positive president in American history. And let me just point out, that is not staking a middle ground. That is not moving toward unity, but the LGBTQ community is one of the most important components of the Democratic base. And it was uh, uh, it was service to the Democratic base that Joe Biden took these actions yesterday, right after repeatedly calling for national unity. This is a glimpse of what we can expect moving forward. Well, the media is painting Joe Biden as a rare church attending president, perhaps our most religious president to date. I don't know if that's true or not. It's not really for me to know. But I think the way the media is addressing the subject is of significant interest. He is a liberal. He is a professing Catholic who, as you might remember, during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, was the um, uh, the worst thing one could possibly be, especially if you take one's faith seriously and if you take a pro-life position. But there are back-to-back paragraphs that 
uh, give a feel for how the media treat Democrats dramatically different than Republicans. Bill Clinton was the last president who regularly attended church in Washington while in office and became a member of a local church. He joined Foundry United Methodist Church about a mile from the White House. Jimmy Carter also joined a church about a mile from the White House, attending services at First Baptist on 16th Street most Sundays during his time in office. Donald Trump attended services on occasion, including at St. John's Episcopal Church near the White House, although he most frequently attended. His most frequent destination on Sundays was to a golf club he owns across the Potomac in Virginia. A look at how the covering Bidens um, uh, and uh, contrasting that with George W. Bush and Jimmy Carter rather uh, interesting. We'll get into that on another occasion. Uh, But again, the media has uh, taken a a different tack in dealing with the uh, sitting president and his religiosity, which they have embraced as um, a good thing for the nation when just weeks earlier with Amy Amy Coney Barrett, the now Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, was the worst thing that could possibly have befallen this constitutional republic. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back to hear from Charles Stone. Holy Noticing is the title of the book published by Moody. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is the author of Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. Well, in the book, Dr. Charles Stone guides readers through the lost art of holy noticing, purposefully paying attention to God as he works in us, in our relationships, and in our world. Now, many of us today think that mindfulness is dangerous, it's unchristian, it's associated with Eastern religions, and quite often it's... It is. But according to Dr. Stone, he explains that mindfulness is a spiritual discipline that Christians have practiced for millennia. And he explores the historically Christian and biblical roots of the lifestyle. He teaches readers how to be more engaged with Christ in the everyday moments that too often slip by us, noticing with a holy purpose. So I'm looking forward to uh, talking with Dr. Charles Stone. He served for 38 years in ministry, 26 of those years as a senior pastor. He currently pastors uh, West Park Church in London, Ontario, Canada, a multicultural congregation. Uh, He founded Stonewell Ministries as well to serve pastors and churches through coaching and consulting. Many of his articles have been featured in magazines such as Outreach, Leadership Journal, Rev, New Man, and others. And his blog posts have appeared on sites like pastors.com, sermoncentral.com, churchcentral.com, and many others. He joins us today to talk about his book, Holy Noticing, The Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. Thank you so much for joining, uh, joining us, Dr. Stone. Great to be with you, Georgine. Well, this is uh, this could be considered a controversial book in that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, mindfulness is a practice that has gained a great deal of popularity. But you point out very early, even in the introduction, that what you're ta- writing about, holy noticing, is an ancient biblical practice. Give us a bit of history. Yes, well, it really is. If you look at the language, the Hebrew language, uh, one of the key words in the Hebrew language that describes this concept of mindfulness, being still before God, meditation is the word zakar. And the Hebrew language is a very, very ancient language that precedes the language that perhaps Buddhists might use. So you have that in the scriptures, but you also 
historically in the in the Old Testament, New Testament, in the early church age, you have many of these um, men and women who wanted to seek a deeper relationship with God practiced these concepts, these practices like mindfulness that I'm calling holy noticing. So it's rooted in Scripture as well as in church history. Now, what led you to explore the lost spiritual art of holy noticing? Well, Georgine is very, very personal. It actually started about 32 years ago in a high chair. I was not in the high chair, but my youngest daughter was. Mm-hmm. It was Christmas morning. I was feeding her pureed peaches or something like that, and I noticed her left eye was quivering. Now, you know, if you have a young child, you think that's kind of odd. So a couple of days later, we went to see a specialist. We were in Mississippi, where my wife is from, and he said, it's probably a strabismus, you know, something in her eye that she'll outgrow. But when you go back to Atlanta, where we lived at the time, why don't you go to a specialist? We did. He said the same thing. I don't know, probably a strabismus, but let's do a scan anyway. So a couple of days later, we got a scan, and just as we arrived at home after that scan, so opening the front door, phone rang, I ran into the kitchen, picked it up, and it was the doctor. He said, Mr. Stone, we have the results back. I said, okay, what were they? He said, well, your daughter has a lesion on her brain. And I thought, well, a lesion is like a skin knee, you know, mm-hmm. antibiotic, and you're fine. Then he said something, Georgine, that literally changed our lives in the next several decades. He said, your daughter has a brain tumor. Mm. Little one-year-old girls aren't supposed to get brain tumors. And that actually began this journey. She fast forward ahead 32 years. She's doing pretty well. She's had 12 brain surgeries and she's had devices put into her brain, part of her brain removed. But that living in that world of neuroscience made me ask the question, not that I had a brain tumor, but because I struggled with anxiety and defensiveness, you know, as a pastor, like, why is this happening when I practice all disciplines? That led me to this a discovery of this ancient practice that as I have practiced has been a, made a profound difference in my life. So the genesis really was rooted in that day, Christmas Day, when I noticed something was wrong in my daughter's eye. Mm. You write that uh, our journey with Tiffany made me think more about, uh, more often about what matters most in life uh, yeah. and that this ancient biblical practice really uh, calls us to be more mindful, if you will, to use a uh, sometimes misused term, um, but calls us to be more aware of God's presence, what he's doing, the people in our, in our lives, and so on. Yes. Well, I actually define mindfulness with the two words, holy noticing, and I call it an art. And here's how I actually tease that out a bit. I call holy noticing, noticing with a holy purpose, God in his handiwork, our relationships, and our inner world of thoughts and feelings. So it really is an art to learn to be present because what happens, Georgine, a lot of times in life, I'm guilty of this too, and and everybody is. We have a difficult moment. We have a difficult experience. We want to get past that. We want to get beyond that. We want to get out of this difficult moment to get to the next better moment. So we're always searching for the next better moment rather than realizing, okay, this is the moment I'm in. This is the experience I, uh, I'm having. These are the emotions and thoughts I'm having. I need to be present with the Lord to notice what he's up to, how he's working, and learn from that. So it's, it really is an art that can profoundly impact many areas of our lives and, and I believe help us, help us become more like Jesus. You draw our attention to the Apostle Paul who writes in Ephesians 5 uh, that we are to make the most of every opportunity. 
and you ask a series of questions that I think all of us would a- would answer in the affirmative, but don't really think about um, the fact that we can control more than we think we can about how we navigate through some of life's challenges and through some of life's greatest joys. Yeah, you know, we all have difficult experiences, and the difficult experiences are hard enough. But what really makes them worse is what how we respond to those in our mind and our thoughts. Because what we often do, instead of, uh, it's the proverbial snowball effect. A difficult situation happens. We experience a difficult but our commentary we add to it, the spins we put on it, makes it become much, much larger. So the original problem no longer is the original problem, the difficulty we were facing, but it's what we add to it and the narrative we add to it. And when we narrative, which is almost always negative, these negative emotions happen and anxiety rises and depression rises and defensiveness rises, whereas holy noticing helps us stop before we began to add all this commentary and make things really worse than they really are. Now, you point out, and I think most of our listeners would be aware of the fact that mindfulness is a pretty big deal today. It's become a billion-dollar-a-year business. Uh, and the, the question is, should Christians em- embrace it just because everyone else is doing it, or is there a biblical basis for our doing so? Uh, and uh, to what end? So let's let's address that. You reference J.I. Packer, who writes about this kind of practice, so that we can dispel any uh, concerns that this is just following a trend um, that's become popularized, as sometimes Christian practice does. It follows whatever is popular, and we, we do it because the rest of the culture does it, and it may make us seem more relevant. Yeah, it, it's... Mindfulness from a Christian context is not just, oh, this is a new fad, let's jump on board. But because we have deep uh, biblical roots in the Old Testament, New Testament, because we follow some of these early, um, what they're called contemplatives, these were men and women who left persecution and went to the deserts, probably 30,000 over two or three centuries. And also when Christianity was finally legalized, many left because they thought the church was no longer pure. And in their experiences, they discovered these deep, rich insights always rooted back in Scripture. So because we have the scriptural support, because we have uh, the historical support, and because science, neuroscience, is now affirming these things that Scripture already knew about, we can say, I think with a strong level of confidence that mindfulness, holy noticing, practiced in a Christian context is a very sound spiritual practice. And you find J.I. Packer, you find D.L. Moody, you find A.W. Tozier, uh, you find uh, John Wesley, all of these great, more recent uh, Christians that we admire and respect speak of this uh, contemplative way of being still before God, only noticing. So we have strong biblical roots in all different directions that support it. Well, in fact, as you've defined it, uh, that's really countercultural living because that's contrary to the fast-paced, always distracted life uh, that's so common in our culture today. Yeah, you know, we are always on autopilot, rush, 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 especially with all of our gadgets. You know, I'm, I'm a gadget guy. I have an Apple Watch on my wrist. I'm looking at my iPhone. I've, I'm, I've got my screen here with my uh, with my Mac. So we're, we're constantly on like 24-7. So we live in this crazy culture. But if we go back and look at a very interesting scene in Jesus' life, he visited the home of Mary and Martha, very famously. He loved both of these sisters. Martha was all fretful and worried, busy in the kitchen, 
what was Mary doing? She was at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus honored her by doing so, and he mildly rebuked Martha. And I think that's a beautiful, I think, a word picture of what our culture is today, only revved up you know, a thousand times more than back then. So Jesus himself honored and spoke well of a lifestyle that, it, that learns to be still and to be quiet and to be present in the moment rather than wanting to rush to this next better moment. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Stone, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about his book, Holy Noticing the Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Charles Stone. He is senior pastor at West Park Church in London, Ontario, Canada, a multicultural congregation with over a thousand attendees. He also founded Stonewell Ministries to serve pastors and churches through coaching and consulting. We're talking about his book, Holy Noticing the Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. Now, what are the three ways of looking um, that uh, holy noticing involves? I'm sorry, repeat that again. Yeah, I was asking the three ways of looking um, that holy noticing involves. Yes, three kind of dimensions, uh, looking up, looking out, and looking in. Looking up, our relationship with the Lord. Looking out, our relationship with others. And looking in, what's really going on inside our mind, our thoughts, and our emotions. So kind of a three-dimensional perspective there. I think for many of us, um, we can imagine uh, living that way when we're in our daily devotions. But in real time, as we're in the car, as we're sitting at our desk, we find it difficult and challenging to do just that, which you're absolutely right, is uh, what we're told to do in Scripture. Um, How did Jesus model and embody this way of life that might help us to see how we might do the same? Well, Jesus was the the prototype, the perfect example of what it really meant to be holy noticing. Um, Just several examples in his life. Jesus noticed the children that wanted to come to him, and the disciples wanted to shoo them away. Jesus noticed the lepers that cried for him. Jesus, Jesus noticed that when a woman who was sick touched his cloak. So you see... Jesus, in, in almost every episode, he was extremely busy. I mean, I mean, people are clamoring for him all the time. But he noticed the small people. He noticed the small things. Of this life of mindful, mindfully, yet he often pulled away to be with his father. So, so actually, Georgine, there's there, there's two kind of perspectives. There's the state of mindfulness that is doing our quiet time. I practice this every day when I have a Bible reading and prayer. So it's it's in those quiet moments, but there's also the trait. We actually live this out in daily life. It's not just something we do in the prayer closet. It's something maybe we learn to do in the prayer closet when it's quieter, but it's something we live out. And I actually use an acronym, BREATHE, and each of the letters of that acronym represents a component of mindfulness that we can practice in our devotional time and uh, components that we that help us live out uh, the life that Jesus wants us to live. What did you find most challenging about um, tr- attempting to live with that kind of holy noticing? I, I use this illustration. I may date myself here a little bit, so <laughs> forgive me for dating myself. But when I was a kid, we had black and white TV. Saturday mornings, I watched Tarzan. Johnny Weissmuller was the Tarzan at the time. He, he swam in the Olympics. And 
Tarzan was friends with all the animals. All the animals liked Tarzan. And the monkeys, when danger was coming, they would jump from tree to tree and from limb to limb, and that would always tell Tarzan that, hey, danger's coming. Well, our minds are kind of like those monkeys. Our minds and our thoughts flip from one thing to the next to the next to the next. Whether it's having a conversation with somebody or when we're praying and our minds flip to this, to this, to this, and we're off watching a football game in our mind when we start out praying. So probably one of the most difficult things we have to deal with in learning this lifestyle is learning to catch ourselves when our minds wander, kind of like those those monkeys that would, would warn Tarzan. And there's actually a term, it's kind of a big term, but it's a helpful term, I think, for your listeners to maybe to understand. It's the term metacognition. Big word, but important word. Metacognition. Cognition is thinking. And that really is really means thinking about your thinking. The Apostle Paul, one of his favorite words was the word mind. He used it over 40 times. So one of the biggest challenges is recognizing when our mind starts wandering. But when we learn the discipline of recognize that, when we practice metacognition, it helps us bring us back to whoever we were talking to, brings us back to our time of prayer, or back to our Bible reading and Bible study. So that's the challenge I faced. It's probably going to be the biggest challenge most people will face if they try to build this into their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I like about uh, your book, Holy Noticing, is that you intersect brain insight with biblical truth so that we understand that we're not only... Um, told to do certain practices in Scripture, but there's also evidence in our physical body that there are benefits uh, to being obedient in this and other areas. Yes. I think it was St. Augustine was the first to say this. Calvin also said it, that all truth is God's truth. So what good science, good neuroscience can teach us, it is truth. Now, not truth in the level of scriptural truth, but it's truth. So, we're finding out more and more of these uh, as, as neuroscientists study how the brain works and how the mind works. They're finding all these incredible benefits that mindfulness brings. Now, let me say this. I think it's important to say that we practice mindfulness not because it's all about me and my happiness. We practice it because it's all about God and becoming more Christ-like. So that's the ultimate goal, to become more Christ-like. But in doing so, practicing mindfulness, holy noticing, there are these incredible benefits that are that come to us, and I'd be happy to cover some of those if you'd like for me to. Yeah, please do. Well, three or four come to mind. First of all, they're finding out there are incredible benefits to our body dealing with stress. It helps us deal with stress. They're also finding uh, that there's something called uh, HRA, heart ra- HRV, heart rate variability. Now, usually you think, you know, you got a good, you know, 60 to 70 beats a minute. That's, that's good. That's a good heart rate. But there's a new measure of health, and that is the, the, how the rate of the, your heart rate changes. It's called heart rate variability. They're finding that mindfulness helps create a better HRV sign of health. Another amazing thing, Georgine, is they found out that mindfulness is related to longevity. At the end of our um, of our chromosomes or little end caps, kind of like what, uh, what's on our um, shoelaces, the little plastic things on the end of our shoelaces. Mm-hmm. And the longer those are, uh, the, the, uh, it's related to longevity, living longer. Mindfulness helps reduce the rate of the shrinking of those. So there's, it's related to, to an enhancement of uh, being able to, uh, to live longer. So those are some body benefits. When it comes to emotions, uh, what they're finding out is that mindfulness 
actually can help us with our anxiety and with our depression, in many cases, equal to or better than medication. Now, I'm not one of these kind of guys that says no medication at all if you have some you know, anxious thought, anxiety or depression. It can be very helpful under a good, good doctor's uh, diagnosis. But they're finding out mindfulness is just as effective, even more effective in some cases, than actually using drugs and controlling depression and anxiety. So those are just three or four incredibly positive benefits uh, that mindfulness helps. And one more I might add is sleep. They're finding out that mindfulness helps us sleep better rather than some people have difficult sleeping. I'm still not a great sleeper, but a mindful lifestyle actually results, uh, studies have found, in better sleep. So a lot of, lot of benefits. Mm. We're talking about the book Holy Noticing, the Bible, Your Brain, and the Mindful Space Between Moments. Uh, focusing on the ancient practice of holy noticing that's been co-opted by others and popularized in the 21st century. You make the point that obedience is an essential component in holy noticing. Yes, the, the acronym I use, BREATHE, and each one of these letters stands for a particular aspect. The last letter, E, stands for the word ENGAGE. So I like to make the distinction that although we learn about it, as I mentioned earlier, we can learn about this and practice it in the prayer closet the E stands for engage. It means to go and live out this life of Christ. Live out and engage the world. It's not just something we do like a monk where we seclude ourselves uh, from uh, living in, in culture and away from others. But a, a huge component is going out and living it where it's a way of life as we inter- interact with people we love or people that even give us difficulty at church or work or you know wherever we have relationships. So it's really living out the life of Christ. Now, you mentioned the breathe model, um, the the last component of it. Can you briefly tell us the, the, the other um, elements that each letter represents? Sure. Uh, B-R-E-A-T-H, easy word to remember. And really, each one of these letters represents a component to take a look, to examine. B stands for body. R stands for relationships. E stands for your environment. A stands for affect, and that's really another word for emotions. A stands for affect or emotions. T stands for thoughts. H stands for heart. I'll go through and unpack that just briefly. B, to ponder and yield your body means to check, do a check-in. What's your body state right now? In each of these, in each of these categories, there are anchor verses, scripture verses, that as you practice it, reading these, reciting these, if you memorize them, deepens that particular practice into scripture. So B means checking into your body. R means relationships, how are they doing? E means noticing your environment. Sometimes you're in a place where you can just revel in God's creative work. And sometimes you simply are paying attention to, like, for example, I live up in Canada. It's cold in the winter, and I, I have my devotional time upstairs, and I have a fan on that has a little heater. Sometimes I'm simply paying attention to that and deepening my attentional abilities because attention is an important quality we need to have to learn and to build relationships. So E Check in your environment. A, you're asking yourself, okay, what's going on inside of me and my emotions? Call them out, name those emotions. T is ask yourself, okay, what's going on inside of my mind? What are my thoughts right now? And H stands for your heart. And I kind of imagine a, the Holy Spirit putting a searchlight on my heart, revealing to me any sin that I might need to confess. But also, 
being still enough before the Lord that we can sense his gentle whispers, his gentle nudgings about maybe we need to go do something for our wife or our kids or our our pastor or somebody at work. So each one of those, B for body, R, relationship, E, environment, A, affect, T, thoughts, H, heart, and then the final E is engage, living it out in day-to-day living. We're talking about holy noticing, and you can learn more, certainly from the book. You go into much greater detail. There's also, you can find more information at holynoticing.com. The Bible, your brain, and the mindful space between moments. For those who embrace this ancient Christian practice, um, what might they anticipate in terms of liberating their uh, worldview in, in living in the moment, making the most of their time, and perhaps seeing God's hand at work more clearly than they might other uh, otherwise have seen it. Well, Georgine, like in any something, uh, things that we do that are new, there's a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of uncertainty because the brain does not like uncertainty. It kind of kicks in that fight flight part of our of our brain. I would really encourage your listeners to give it a try. And for me, my practice is maybe five days a week, twenty minutes in my devotional time, but you build up to that. So what I encourage people to do if they're starting out, first of all, realize it's biblical, it's rooted in scripture, it's rooted in Christian history, and it's rooted in good neuroscience. So we have three strong strands uh, that that, that support the efficacy of it. So realize that. Secondly, start small. What I encourage people to do is what they understand is they understand each one of these components like B to practice it maybe a minute or two for a week or for five days. Then the next week, still doing B, R. Now, each one of these has a particular um, uh, exercise with it. For example, R, I have a little um, image for each one, and the R, imagining concentric circles you know, small circle in those going out. Mm-hmm. Imagine those closest to you in that center circle, and you're reflecting over that relationship. Like, for example, my wife's name is Cheryl. I'll often put her in that center circle in my mind's eye and ask myself, Lord, is there is everything, is everything right in this relationship? And most of the time it is because we keep short accounts. Sometimes, though, the person that goes in that center circle, the person I'm having difficult with at work or you know, our neighbor, say, okay, Lord, what should be my next step? So it's envisioning those, those concentric circles and then checking in how are my relationships yeah, doing. Yeah. So start out small and then build from there. Again, the book is titled Holy Noticing. Dr. Stone, thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. By the way, the book is published by Moody, is available in bookstores. You can also go to the website, holynoticing.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Today in the second hour, we're going to hear from Dean and Sarah. He's the author of The Unsaved Christian. Yeah, you heard me correctly. The Unsaved Christian Reaching Cultural Christianity with the gospel. That's coming up in the second half of today's second hour. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, uh, the union that backed uh, President Biden is blistering him over the XL pipeline executive order that was issued last week. What did they think would happen? Well, in revoking this permit, the Biden administration has chosen to listen to the voices of activists on the fringe instead of union members and the American consumer on day one. Well, that's a uh, Quote from Mark McManus, president of the UA, on Monday. Let me be very clear. When uh, 
We built uh, this uh, union on labor by the men and women of the United States Association pipeline like Keystone XL remain the safest and most efficient modes of energy transportation in the world. Sadly, the Biden administration has now put thousands of union workers out of work. For the average American family, it means energy costs will go up and communities will no longer see the local investment that came uh, that come with pipeline construction. And by the way, that oil will have to be transported using vehicles. One of the benefits of the XL pipeline was that it wasn't being driven from one place to another. That will now be uh, handled differently. Meanwhile, Senator Josh Hawley says, for some time, conservatives recognizing that we're now the counterculture indulged in the delusion that we could opt out of all of this. We'd send our kids to school that don't teach all the woke stuff. We'd make our friends at church, not at work, and take comfort that uh, trust and openness were still possible in communities that shared purpose. We'd vote our conscience because the ballot box was something no election could take from us. And if ever our political organizing uh, were impeded by censorship, say by the high big tech giants, we could build our own platforms. But the left and the corporations are challenging all of this now. You can read his piece in the New York Post. It's worth a good read. And Holly, or rather Molly Hemingway on Twitter says this, excellent piece on the draconian muzzling of conservatives escalating at a frightening pace in recent weeks. Much of conservatism, Inc. is cloistered from this terrifying censorship, and it shows in their mockery of those who face it. But this is a major political issue. Well, just one in five are confident that uh, Joe Biden will unite the country. Now, that doesn't mean he will or won't. It just means people's confidence levels are... Uh, following a very contentious election or about where you'd expect them to be. But another 35% believe he has a shot at it. Uh, Largely, that will be determined by the way the average American responds, I suppose. And Biden's approval rating starts below 50%. His shocking 48% approval is below where Trump started, according to Rasmussen, and nearly 20% below Obama. Now, again, we've just finished a contentious election. Let's see what happens in these next first 100 days. Well, a cat's birthday party has led to 15 people getting COVID. Okay, I just threw that one in. It happened in Chile, and this is uh, worldwide news. What a time to be alive. Well, a growing number of GOP senators oppose a trial. Uh, the articles of impeachment, if they haven't already done so, will be trotted over to the Senate uh, later this evening. And Democrats are eyeing the 14th Amendment as an impeachment alternative that would deprive the former president of the opportunity to hold public office again in the future. In government and politics, the Dominion voting systems are suing Rudy Giuliani. They're seeking $1.3 billion. I don't know if he has it. Talks have stalled over a Senate power sharing agreement and a voice of sanity. Democrat Tulsi Gabbard is asking Joe Biden to denounce the targeting of all Trump supporters. And Pete Buttigieg says a gas tax hike is on the table. I suppose there's no big surprise there. Well, the self-anointed arbiters of truth on Facebook's oversight board are going to hand down independent judgments on the Trump ban, and the Washington Post fact-checkers won't count false Biden claims. They announced early in the uh, uh, Trump administration that they were going to fact-check virtually everything he said, thought, or did, but they don't feel like they need to with Biden. Adding insult to injury, the Washington Post is caught scrubbing Kamala Harris's prisoner story. You'll have to look that one up if you're interested in more detail. Well, journalists are celebrating the destruction of freedoms they once championed. And researchers say 17 percent of Americans, 55 million people, have been infected with COVID-19. Hospitalizations uh, fallen to the lowest level since mid-December. 
as the U.S. reports sharp drops in new cases. President Biden's reinstating COVID travel ban targeting the U.K., Europe and Brazil. And Merck is ending its uh, clinical trials for two inferior vaccine candidates. Only 10 serious allergic reactions to Moderna vaccines and no deaths are being reported. And California, not surprisingly, ranks last in administering vaccine doses. Rest in peace, Hank Aaron, Major League Baseball legend. He died at 86. And Larry King, the TV talk show icon who quizzed the famous and the infamous, died at 87. Around the nation, Kentucky, a a bill is protecting abortion survivors passed without the governor's signature. And Chicago Teachers Union is voting to defy the order to return to classrooms, according to the Washington Examiner. And meanwhile, Las Vegas schools began reopening to combat the surge in student suicides. Around the world, more than 3,000 have been arrested in Russia in protests calling for the release of Vladimir Putin's critic, Alexei Navalny. ISIS has claimed responsibility for twin suicide bombings in Baghdad. Missile or drone, one or the other, was intercepted over Saudi Arabia's capital of Riyadh. And Mexico's president has tested positive for COVID-19. Finally, on this day in history, 1915, America's first official transcontinental telephone call takes place as Alexander Graham Bell, who is in New York, speaks to his former assistant, Thomas Watson, who is in San Francisco, over a line set up by American Telephone and Telegraph, 1915. 1924, the first Winter Olympic Games opens in France. 1945, the Battle of the Bulge in World War II ends as Germany, as uh, German forces rather, are pushed back to their original positions. Also in 1945, Grand Rapids, Michigan, becomes the first community to add fluoride to its public water supply. Finally, on this day in history, 1961, President John F. Kennedy holds the first presidential news conference to be carried live on radio and television. On the 2017, President Trump said the federal government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in the military. Well, today, President Biden signed an executive order reversing former President Trump's ban on individuals serving in the military, saying it is the right thing to do and is in the national interest of the United States, end quote. But the order sets the policy that all Americans who are qualified to serve in the armed forces of the United States shall be able to do so. The administration stressed that the U.S. military thrives when it's composed of diverse Americans who can meet the rigorous standards of military service and added that an inclusive military strengthens our national security. Now, morale was one of the major issues pointed to under the previous administration. We'll see if that uh, holds up. President Biden believes that gender identity should not be a bar to military service and that American strength is found in diversity, the White House said. This question of how to enable all qualified Americans to serve in the military is easily answered by recognizing our core values, end quote. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. I just want to remind you as well, later this hour, we'll hear from Dean and Sarah, author of The Unsaved Christian. We're going to take a look at cultural Christianity, how to confront it with the gospel. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You know, so much of our attention, particularly now because we have a new administration and changes, dramatic changes are being made, is focused on what's going on in Washington. Many of the state legislatures are meeting in their respective capitals, and there's just a lot going on. But I wanted to close out at least this part of the headline news part of the program before we hear from Dean and Sarah later 
in the latter half of today's program on a story that, well, wouldn't necessarily garner the intention that it deserves. But it reminds us that there's so much going on in the world that has very little to do with politics uh, in certain locales across the country, whether we're talking local or at some considerable distance. Well, I was heartened to learn about uh, U.S. Marshals who rescued some 33 missing children and what they called Operation Lost Angels. More than 30 children were rescued by U.S. Marshals from human trafficking. And I want to just stop there for a moment. Rescued by U.S. Marshals from human trafficking in Southern California, uh, including eight who were being sexually exploited. This is such an angering subject to me. And I know for many of us, it's frustrating. During this pandemic, I've had an opportunity to focus more attention than I had in the past on um, missing and exploited children, and particularly those who are being exploited sexually. So this is becoming more and more an issue uh, near and dear to my heart in terms of uh, human exploitation and trafficking. So I was in, I was encouraged to hear that these are only 30 children, but there are 30 of them for each one of those individuals. We've got some great organizations here in the state of Oregon. They're doing magnificent work rescuing and coming alongside people. You don't just rescue them, lift them out of a particular circumstance and it's over. They're committing themselves to doing some significant work. But again, this story just, I think, highlights uh, some of the great work that's being done during a pandemic across the country. Now, this multi-day joint agency, Operation Lost Angels, it vo- involved more than two dozen partner agencies. It was initiated earlier this month. The rescue operation w- recently culminated in the recovery of 33 children, according to the assistant director in charge of the FBI's Los Angeles field office in a press release. Of the 33 recovered, eight were being sexually exploited at the time of recovery, which means that others might have been or intended to be uh, at some future point. Two were recovered multiple times during the operation while on the track, a common term used to describe a known location for commercial sex trafficking. We're talking about innocent children for whom God will hold these individuals accountable. In fact, the uh, article that I read about it Uh, posted the images of those who were involved. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of people involved in this operation. And this involved only 33 precious, unique children. So one can only imagine how many people are involved beyond that. Again, one of the officers said people who become a victim of commercial sex trafficking and then return either voluntarily or by force, fraud or coercion, is not uncommon, even after being rescued in previous operations. Um, They have been groomed and trained, and that's what they know. This harmful cycle highlights the challenges victims face and those faced by law enforcement when attempting to keep victims from returning to an abusive situation. Victims may not self-identify as being trafficked or may not even realize they're being trafficked. Again, we're calling this 33 missing children. According to information obtained by local um, agency there, the minors were aged 13 to 17, though this hasn't been confirmed. Officials announced one suspect accused of human trafficking was taken into custody on federal charges. The agency has since um, opened multiple investigations. Some of the recovered victims were arrested as well for allegedly being involved in violating probation, robbery, among other things, which I suppose shouldn't be surprising, misdemeanors. One child was also the victim of a a non-custodial parental kidnapping. The officer said the FBI considers minors who get engaged in commercial sex trafficking as victims while comparing human trafficking as a modern-day slavery. 
that cannot, it must not be tolerated. Michael Moore, who's the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, stressed that human trafficking is a threat to our youth, calling it a pervasive and insidious crime we must be aware of. Human trafficking is a pervasive and insidious crime that threatens the safety of our young people who are the future of our communities. We can only begin to take back the future of our youth with a strong partnerships forged between outstanding service providers and law enforcement. And there are outstanding service providers and law enforcement. I mentioned I mentioned that for two reasons. Number one, to affirm the work that they're doing, but also to encourage those of us who are perhaps on the outside to remember to pray for those who are on the front lines. This work can be um, devastating, may not be the right word, but it can be um, life altering for those who are trying to come alongside and help those who are in this kind of modern day slavery known as human trafficking. The FBI says the uh, caseload for both sex and labor trafficking related crimes has been a a, a surge in the last several years. The agency says it's working on more than 1,800 pending investigations as of November of last year, including cases involving minors. Last year, 664 human trafficking investigations were conducted nationwide, which resulted in 473 traffickers being arrested. Um, That's an impressive number, but it's a very small number compared to the numbers that are involved in this uh, heinous crime. In another large human trafficking operation earlier this month, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, this is not to Oregon, announced in January, um, which is human, National Human Trafficking Awareness Day, the 11th, a month-long undercover sting in Florida that resulted in 71 arrests. Um, as I mentioned, there were photos of arrested people over the human trafficking sting there. Um, and again, it just, I, I felt ill looking at those images and considering what they were willing to do to exploit um, these young people for their own benefit. Well, the operation known as Operation Interception was created to combat human trafficking leading up to the Super Bowl that's going on now, coming to Tampa in February. From earlier in December through the 9th of January, undercover detectives posted advertisements online offering to meet up, uh, seeking um illegal connection. Female detectives also posed as workers. All 71 suspects are male. All are aged 20 to 62, the sheriff said. Those arrested include an active duty military member, a firefighter, a Christian school teacher, a banker, a construction worker, local business owners, two registered sex offenders. These are our neighbors. Former President Donald Trump has made fighting human trafficking a top priority of his administration since the day he entered office. He signed an executive order back in January of 2020 focused on eliminating human trafficking and online child exploitation in the U.S., which requires resources to be directed in ways that would result in the prosecution of offenders, assist victims, and expand prevention education programs. Let's hope that continues to be the focus under the new administration, as this is a crime that cannot be tolerated. It must be recognized, and it must be confronted head on. Well, coming up, we're going to hear from author Dean Insera. His latest book is titled The Unsaved Christian Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. So I hope you'll stick around to enjoy that conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, cultural Christianity rears its head during this season because a lot of people come 
to the Easter service. They come to the Christmas service. They may self-identify as Christians. But my next guest makes a distinction that may, in fact, save them. Whether it's the Christmas and Easter Christian or the faithful church attender whose hearts are, well, cold toward the Lord, cultural Christians um, are common in our culture today. Uh, they check the Christian box on a survey. They're fine with going to church, but they're far from God. How do we bring Jesus to this overlooked mission field. And I appreciate that he puts it in that way, to an overlooked mission field. He believes that cultural Christianity is the most underserved missionary field in America. Well, in his latest book, The Unsaved Church, published by Moody, Dean and Sarah equips readers to confront cultural Christianity with honest compassion compassion, and with grace uh, from the pulpit or in the pews. Well, according to a, a recent study, of U.S. adults, 80% of those polled believe in God, but only 56% believe God as described in the Bible. Well, we're going to talk about this phenomenon. Dean and Sarah is a graduate of Liberty University, holds an M.A. in theological studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is pursuing his his doctorate in ministry from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and is the founding pastor of City Church. He is passionate about reaching the city of Tallahassee with the gospel and to see the worldwide impact made for Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's begin by talking about your own experience, because you point out that you were raised a cultural Christian. Just define what that is and how that played out in your life. Well, if you'd have asked me when I was growing up if I was a Christian, I would have told you absolutely yes, without hesitation. I would have been offended if you thought otherwise. But, but if you asked me my reasons for believing that, none of my answers would have had anything to do with Jesus Christ. By yes, I'm a Christian, I meant that I believe in God. I'm not an atheist or an agnostic. I'm not Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu, and I guess that means I'm a Christian. <laughs> That's really what it meant. It had nothing to do with Christ. I also made the belief in just that I'm a good person, uh, that I come from a good family, that we go to church sometimes. Notice all the answers I gave you had nothing to do with the gospel, and we're not dependent at all upon the gospel. And again, I'm not the judge of who's a Christian and who's mm-hmm. not, uh, but, but the scriptures are. And nothing in the Bible would indicate that anything in my life would have been a saving faith. Uh, so that's why I call it an unsaved Christian. Went to church all the time, never heard the gospel in my entire life until I went to a Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp and I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. How did Christ seek and find you? Well, I was ma- raised mainline Protestant. That's not, to, that's not to say there aren't some remnant ones and faithful ones out there. Uh, but mine surely wasn't. And again, went to church every single Sunday unless we were sick or out of town. I could have told you some Bible stories, uh, just some basic kind of Old Testament stories like David and Goliath. I knew a little bit about Jesus in terms of his actual saving work, never had anyone tell me I actually needed to be saved. And I was invited by a friend to go to Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and we had a speaker at a retreat, like a sports camp retreat we went to, and we had an assembly time. And the speaker really just gave a classic gospel presentation that God is a holy God, that I've sinned against him. And that because of that, like, I owe God for my sin. The wages of sin is death. God won't let sin go unpunished, but he's also a merciful and a compassionate God, and he's given his one and only son to pay that penalty for us. He died and rose again of the repent of our sins and by faith trust in him. And then he gave an invitation and asked who wants to come forward uh, to make a decision to trust in Christ. And I jumped out of my seat. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. joked that, um, the first, I joke I'm the first person to ever actually come to Christ and be mad about it. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I had joy, uh, but I really was thinking as a 13-year-old, I'm walking down the aisle. We're talking old-fashioned answer call here. Yeah. 
I'm walking, I'm walking down the aisle, and my mind was, how have I been in church my entire life, and no one has ever told me this before? Mm. Mm. Now, what are some of the challenges, uh, the faith challenges that come with worshiping and ministering in the Bible Belt, a place where those of us on the West Coast uh, look toward as a haven for believers, uh, and yet cultural Christianity thrives there? Yes, I do believe cultural Christianity is everywhere, and I'll explain that yeah. a little bit why I believe that. Uh, but in the Bible Belt, what makes it really complicated is that everyone assumes they're a Christian. Uh, there's a lot of confusion. I have a friend who's a pastor in Northern California, and he likes to say what makes it what he enjoys about ministering out there is there's no confusion over who's a Christian and who's not. He said either you're in or you're out usually. Uh, he says where I live here in the South, everybody thinks they're fine. So you almost have to get someone lost in order for them to get saved. They have to be able to see their sin. But just enough of Jesus to be personally associated with him, and by that I mean knowledge, maybe admiration, but nowhere near anything that would actually interfere with their lives. So I would say the, the ruling religion in, in uh, the Bible Belt is a cultural Christianity that has no interference uh, with anyone's life whatsoever. Now, I think it's important for those who don't necessarily understand what we mean by the phrase cultural Christian to talk about why this is a bad thing, because there are some people who are convinced that church attendance is what uh, is sufficient for a relationship with Christ, um, that saving faith consists of uh, attending events that are Christian in orientation, being in a family and a second or third generation Christian, while not having necessarily made a personal Declaration of Faith. So describe uh, once again what cultural Christianity is and contrast that to um, uh, individual coming to saving faith and being a follower of Jesus. Well, I think for a long time where the confusion has taken place is that folks believe that cultural Christians just need more discipleship, and they need to get more serious about their faith. And I make the case in the book The Unsaved Christian that they do not need discipleship. This is a different religion altogether. They need to actually be reached for Christ. They need evangelism and not discipleship. I truly believe that cultural Christianity is its own unique religion, and it's a religion that, again, they, 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 they would hang their hat on, uh, on basic three basic tenets. And the first one is a generic or vague theism, just this basic belief in God. They're not atheists, they're not agnostics. The second thing would be a true belief that they're good people. It's a self-righteousness. It's not like a Pharisee where it causes you to look down on other people, but it's one that just has confidence in their own goodness and own morality, and it, it takes a lot of hope and a lot of security in that. And the third one's really strange. I don't know where it comes from, but the belief they'll go to heaven when they die. Every cultural Christian funeral I've ever been to, Uncle Johnny is now playing golf with Uncle Steve in the sky. <laughs> it's one of those things that someone always says every single time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, notice the reasons I just gave you for why those people would think they're a Christian. I didn't mention Jesus one time. So I would say a cultural Christian is someone who defines their Christianity, and I have, I'm putting air quotes up, their Christianity apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. When I was a cultural Christian, and by that I was not saved yet is what I mean, uh, I, the, I, we could say that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ could have never even taken place, and it wouldn't have affected my faith at all. Now, it's one thing what you and I think about cultural Christianity as opposed to Christianity that is uh, rooted in the gospel. But what does the Scripture say? What does Jesus think about this, uh, this kind of faith, if you will? I would say he has no recognition of it in terms of it being an acceptable form of faith. Uh, what cultural Christianity does is it appeals to everyone and everyone else but Christ. 
Uh, I like to say that cultural Christians uh, say, look at me, didn't I do this? And a believer, a born-again believer, would say, no, look to Christ, look what he has done. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 said, many, not a few, many, (laughs) will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name? And he says he'll tell them, away from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. That could translate today into, didn't I go to church? Didn't I say a prayer before dinner? Wasn't I a good person? Didn't I choke up during the singing of God bless America? And Jesus would say, your appeal is to everything else except to where it actually needs to be for righteousness, which is in him. And he would dismiss us as it not being an acceptable faith. You know, those are terrifying words to consider. I just had a conversation about this with someone earlier this week, um, that those are are really frightening words. You want to be certain because you don't want to hear those words come from him. It's it's bad enough to just read them in the scripture, but to have uh, have those words spoken to you uh, from him on that day of judgment is a terrifying thought. Yeah, and I don't don't say those things to scare someone, even though it is terrifying. Uh, I I, I say, you know, encourage people to think about these things for clarity, just so we know. In the book of 1 John, he said, I write you these things that you may know. So I always want to make sure people know and understand what the Bible says is a Christian and what the Bible says is not. Yeah, yeah, we want to be certain. Now, what are some of the hallmarks, and you've touched on this a little bit, of religion without salvation? Yeah, morality, just a, a, a basic Western understanding of morality, um, a great pride in heritage, usually, or a Christian family, uh, talk about talk about things such as values and morals and ethics, uh, much more than ever talk about Christ or the scriptures or the gospel. Also, a confusion with maybe being an American uh, with being a Christian. They almost see it as a type of nationality, almost an ethnicity, uh, to, you can even go that far, uh, where, again, it just, these, these common just kind of cultural ideas uh, where Christianity is just kind of tagged on to a long list of somebody's makeup. Like, you know, a Girl Scout would have a bunch of badges on her mm-hmm. vest, on her Girl Scout vest. Mm-hmm. Christianity is kind of viewed that way. It's just another thing on the vest. Uh, but really, it is a generic faith. And that, that, that generic and that word vague is so important to understand cultural Christians. Because again, the thought of atheism or agnosticism would offend them. But it's not the God of the Bible they believe in, because our God is not vague or generic. He has defined himself through his word. In the book of Hebrews, he said in the past, he spoke through the Psalms, the prophets, but by in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. God has communicated who he is to us. So that generic, vague idea of God is probably the biggest one. Now, one of the more difficult challenges is, and you said early, uh, earlier in our conversation, that uh, it's not up to us to determine who's a Christian, who's not. But how do we navigate the delicate and sensitive um, area of, of confronting this Uh, false religion. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk about that and give you an opportunity to explain how you, um, from the outside, how you manage to uh, speak with someone and challenge the notion. So we'll be back in a few moments. Again, we're talking with Dean and Sarah. He is the author of The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Talking with Dean and Sarah, he is the author of The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. 
Now, uh, recognizing what cultural Christianity is, I suppose there are two audiences for your book and the prescriptions in it. One is the individual who recognizes in the definition that you have given himself or herself as a cultural Christian. And then there are those of us who are concerned about friends or family members. Um, How do you approach the subject? We are not the judge. We don't know the hearts of people. And yet we want to... um, we want people to have the same assurance of salvation um, that is intended for those who have a relationship with Christ. I appreciate that question because it's so important. And I think one, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, mm-hmm. but it's just going to take some. It's going to take some courage. It, it just is going to take some courage. I mean, no one ever wants to be accused of being judgmental or anything like that. I don't. I don't want to be that way. No one wants to be that way. But this is going to take courage. And the only way it's really going to happen is if we truly in our hearts, believe these people are lost. And by lost, I don't mean they're not like us. They're not, I'm talking about they don't know Christ, like they're separated from God. And then that will give us the right mindset, the right, I guess, attitude, the right posture of going to speak with someone as you actually see someone as not someone needs to shape up or get it together or get back in church. No, but someone who actually needs to trust in the Lord. That That's what's critical is that posture. So I think it begins there. And then there's two things we're looking for that the, the, the Scriptures are looking for for us if, as believers and those who are cultural Christians. The first one is belief. Like, what do we actually believe? Are we believing the Gospel? Do you believe in the God of the Bible? Or is it just this generic, vague, big man upstairs, big guy in the sky, you know, kind of American creation of a God? Will we believe about human sin? Will we believe about salvation in Christ? And then after that, the Scriptures tell us that a good tree is going to bear fruit. So if we don't see right belief in terms of their belief in their Christianity having nothing to do with the gospel, and then we don't see any actual fruit in their lives that would show repentance, that would show a changed life, that would show a new creation, but even show a desire to grow or be discipled is it as a new Christian even, then I think we have a scriptural obligation to go, hey, I'm concerned here out of my love for you and my belief in the scriptures, so let's talk to you about this. What are some of the obstacles we might expect on that journey? I think the biggest one, again, it's pretty offensive when you thought you're a Christian your entire life, that someone suggests you're not. <laughs> that's, that's pretty hard. That's pretty complicated. That immediately puts up a divider. Uh, so I, I, I recommend taking a little while to get to that part, just asking some good questions along the way. And, and also, people, a cultural Christian, they're going to, I have a cousin who's in this category. And anytime I talk with her, she immediately jumps to the fact that, well, you don't think I'm a good person? And I'm going, okay, well, in my mind, I'm going, you just proved my point that you really think this is about morality. You think this is about good people and bad people. I'm going, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> like, that's not what this is about. It's really about the fact that we have sinned against, not randomly, but we sinned against God. And that matters. And God is going to deal with sin, but he's also a God who's given us a way out of that, a way to be forgiven. And it was very costly. They cost the life of Christ. So I think that's another obstacle. Is the cultural Christian really sees things believes they're a good person and takes so much hope in that. So to suggest they might not know the Lord in their eyes is to suggest they're a bad person. And that yeah. obviously like is going to cause some offense. And then the third thing, and well, to the last one, maybe if I do ten, but the third one I would say is that they really truly think that they're Christians. And, and by that I mean like their their belief that they believe in God. They're, they're going, it's not like I'm some atheist. It's not like I'm agnostic. What are you talking about? Like of course I'm a Christian. Why would you even suggest otherwise? There's no category in their mind for what would make them not one. And they think the only difference between themselves and maybe you, if you're actually someone who's trying to follow the Lord, 
I think the only difference is you're just more into it than they are. So they just might say, oh, you're just really, really religious. They don't have the connection. There's a disconnect between, no, no, no. We actually believe two different things. That's what's going on here. So that's just critical to work through those things. Mm. What do you think brings cultural Christians to church on Christmas and maybe this weekend or Easter? Yeah, what an important time. And I think it's really important anyone listening out there. You know, we pray that this time of year, this year, time of year especially, that the Lord would bring people to our churches, right? We pray that God would bring guests, bring visitors to come and hear. And then a cultural Christian shows up, God answers our prayer, and we give him a hard time for being there. <laughs> we hmm. say, yeah, where have you been? Uh, you have to think of these people, again, as not believers. Not atheists, I'm talking about that, but they need Jesus just as bad as the atheist. So this is going to sound a little strange, but it's really important to grasp this, to understand what's going to happen on Easter Sunday. For a cultural Christian, going to church on Christmas and Easter is no different than eating turkey on Thanksgiving, than wearing green on St. Patrick's Day, than giving your mom a card or some flowers on Mother's Day, than going to a fireworks show on the 4th of July, or trick-or-treating on Halloween. It's just part of what you do. It really has no spiritual significance whatsoever. It's almost a celebration of spring in their eyes. Uh, so you just have to realize that they're coming the door on Easter Sunday, not caring in any way, shape, or form whatsoever if Jesus actually rose from the grave. It's just a cultural outworking and activity we do as Americans uh, on that certain time of year. So you just got to keep that in mind. This is a routine, but what an opportunity. They're coming to us. They're walking in the door already acknowledging something about this holiday, we get a chance to help them understand what it truly is and why it matters and why it's such a significant thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, that Jesus is alive and rose from the grave. You um, have a chapter, the conclusion really, a heart check for us all. How do I know I'm not a cultural Christian? And what it essentially means is how do I know I'm a follower of Christ um, in the way that the, this, the gospel requires uh, which is kind of a, a heart check for anyone who's uh, reading the book or who is considering where do I fall in this uh, in this lineup, if you will. How important is prayer when we're thinking about uh, influencing, talking with, persuading those who are cultural Christians and haven't yet had the opportunity to have a personal encounter with Christ? Well, I think it's critical. I mean, we believe that God's the one who saves, God's the one who draws, and we're dependent upon Him, we're not dependent upon our cleverness or all crafty words, or even a book we might give someone to read. Like, we're dependent upon the Spirit of God to open people's eyes, to allow them to see the truth of who He is compared to what uh, they are believing. That is the false gospel, the gospel at all, uh, all together. So I would hope that when you're really praying or prayerful about approaching people, you know, we talk about these barriers to reaching them. Let's ask God to knock those barriers down. You know, it's, it's just, it, it's critical. And then from there, that as we pray, we examine our own hearts. Paul said to examine yourself yeah. and be thrown the faith. You know, as you examine yourself and see if you're in the faith, what an important exercise for a Christian. Not only doubting salvation, but just to examine and go, okay, where am I at here? Like, I really I can't believe this. Stuff. Those gospel convictions, are they overflowing in a gospel wisdom? Yeah, and certainly our motivation should be love. Dean and Sarah, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks appreciate for it very much. Once again, the name of the book is The Unsaved Christian Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. Also want to mention um, James Blinn, Clark Hilton, Dan Rice, all involved in uh, today's program. James is producer, Clark is engineer, Dan Rice, giving up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Appreciate all three gentlemen. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.